Kia ora koutou. I'm Nick Tuki, New Zealand's Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Nick Tuki tēnei. He konai i pirangi tēnei e pā ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. Every episode, we talk about the work being done behind the scenes by DOC's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Today, we have lizard expert Lynn Adams on the show. Lynn, let's talk lizards. Kia ora, Nick. Ko Lynn Adams toko ingwa. Kei te papa atawaia hau i mahiana. My name's Lynn Adams, and I work for the Department of Conservation. Kia ora. Lynn, let's talk a little bit about your role. From my understanding, you're the Lizard Queen, uh, but can you just tell us a little bit about your role at DOC? Quite often get princess, but not queen. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I'm a technical advisor here at Department of Conservation, which essentially means that I give advice to people around um, conservation programs and how to recover things, but my specialty is around lizards, New Zealand lizards. What got you into that? What What did you study? What was your passion that, that led you here? Well, to be honest, my passion was birds, and I shouldn't tell my lizard friends that, but, it, but it's <laughs> and it's possibly still true. And so I went to university um, for about five years. I did a master's degree, and I did it on khaki, black stilts, because um, I really love birds. <laughs> and then I got a job in the department and uh, realised that actually we've got quite a lot of people who are really good at looking after birds, um, but we had very few people looking after lizards, so I got a real um, insight into some of the problems that we've got with New Zealand lizards and realised that there's, we've got this big gap in our conservation management, and so that uh, led me down the path around conservation management of lizards, New Zealand lizards. I think birds do get a lot of attention, so I for one am quite glad that you kind of diverted course uh, off the birds and, and onto the, the lizards. How many lizard species have we got in New Zealand? I know this is a very complex, controversial kind of question, but roughly, ballpark, what are we looking at here? So you're right, you'd think that someone who's an expert on lizards would know that sort of basic question, but it's actually really hard. So we've probably got around 109. Species? Species, 109 species. And the reason it's really hard to know how exactly how many is, we're still finding new ones. So I'm not quite sure in that 109 whether I've accounted for the new species that we found in Kaharangi a year ago. And then there's three new species found in central Otago, and I'm pretty sure that's not in the count too. So it might be, we might have to add four more species to that in the near future. How can it be possible, though, that in this modern world, you know, New Zealand isn't terra incognito, we kind of have mapped out most places in the country. How on earth could we still be stumbling over new species and not have seen them before? Actually, in the lizard world, we probably are a little bit terra incognito in that there's lots of places that we don't go. And of the few people who do go there, they're possibly doing other things and not looking at their feet where the lizards are. The other thing about it is that lizards are super sneaky. So they're really good at hiding in uh, vegetation and they're really good at um, avoiding detection. And so even when we go out looking for them, we really struggle to find them when we're looking for them. And it's actually one of our big problems is that we we can't reliably find them because we can't ever say that there's definitely none here. Just as a side note, I'm also a lizard nerd. I have quite an affinity to our lizards, particularly our geckos. Um, But it fascinates me that New Zealand always gets described as a land of birds, I suppose because they're so visible to us. Do you think in reality we would best be described as a land of lizards? 
we're just unique in everything. So our lizards are super unique. We are certainly pre-European times there would have been lizards everywhere for a lot of us who go to the high country in the South Island there's some really amazing hot spots up in the high country there and that's the sort of diversity and abundance that we would have seen before predators hit New Zealand. What is it about our geckos and skinks that make them different to their cousins in the tropics, for example? So there's the obvious things like they give birth to live young. Most of the lizards overseas lay eggs and then they hatch. Our New Zealand ones don't. They give birth to these beautiful little miniature lizards and then quite a lot of the species um, have some quite intensive parental care we suspect um, so we just we just don't know that much about most of our species but um, I won't be surprised if a lot of our species have quite intense parental care which is kind of another thing that we associate with reptiles or or with lizards we like we kind of think that they're cold and they don't do much thinking and that they don't do the things that mammals and birds do but I actually suspect we're we're a little bit off on that thinking. So you were a a bird specialist, actually on one of my favourite species, the black stilt or khaki. Um, How long have you been involved with lizards and what was it that really kind of grabbed your attention and made you realise that somebody needed to care about them? Well, to be honest, I um, I spent most of my childhood roaming around the Canterbury High Country, and so I was constantly encountering lizards. And um, so I I admit that I was uh, right into lizards right from an early age. Um, but I think the thing that really grabbed me from a conservation perspective was over time seeing some of those populations disappear but then also um, seeing some of the amazing diversity that we've got so on some of our offshore islands that I got to when I started working for DOC I started seeing some of those massive skinks that were completely different from anything I'd ever encountered on the mainland so and they were awesome big um, big dinosaurs who look at you as if they might eat you (laughs) And then they look over their shoulder and look up at you and feel a little bit uneasy when they look at me. <laughs> I mean, and, and, to, and to give you a sense of scale, they're, they're not huge. So, like, so if you think about some of the Australian reptiles, they're nothing like that. My understanding is that the, the one animal that's kind of the record length, if, you, if an average-sized person lays out their arm and measures from their elbow to their tips of their fingers, that's how long that animal is. So that's an animal called a robust skink. It's in captivity, which is why we know it's so well and I might have to admit that it's possibly been looked after too well it might be a wee bit overweight but um but it's huge really big animal there was a bigger one though wasn't there a big a bigger um species of gecko Yes, Tell, yes. Do you know about that one? So it's called a Delcourt's gecko. It's extinct. So it was this huge gecko that roamed around New Zealand and who knows what it did, but it's it's gone. And I suspect that there's a lot of species that have gone that we have never recorded and that we will never know about because because they're so small, relatively so small, we don't get the um, fossil records, we don't get um, you know bone deposits in our limestone caves like we do with a lot of our birds. What's the hardest part of your job in terms of looking after these lizards? Oh, the hardest part is that we don't know how to manage them. So when I say that, we don't... It's a little bit of a headline statement, but it feels like we're we're in the place that bird conservation was in the 1960s. And by that I mean we actually know a lot about ecology in New Zealand that we didn't know in the 1960s, but, um, but we don't have management tools to protect lizards from predators. So the predator control that we do around the country, which is amazing and super effective at protecting our birds, is just not good enough for lizards. And so our lizards are declining still in the places that we're doing pest control. And so in that way I feel a little bit helpless in that 
that we don't just have an instant solution for management of lizards. So when people come to me and say we want to look after our lizards in our backyard, I don't have a silver bullet, I don't have a magic answer. That's kind of sad, but it's also where I get a lot of the energy for the job as well because um, because that's where we need to go. We need to develop those tools and we need to develop our techniques. We need to get better at pest control. Yeah, and I think with when it comes to lizards, um, the the real challenge for people is understanding it's not your normal suite of predators necessarily that are impacting on them, uh, uh, is it? That's right. And so, and so we think of predators in New Zealand commonly. If the first thing that comes to mind is um, stoats and rats, and, and maybe we might be thinking about cats in the lizard context, but actually, the information that we've got suggests that mice are the worst predators, and it's because they are super productive. They can produce lots of babies, and they have lots of litters every year, and they feed on um, stuff that's common, like grass seed, and they just go through these crazy um, explosions that we just our pest control tool just can't get on top of. Well, how does a mouse eat a lizard? So lizards are cold-blooded. They, um, they, they work by sitting in the sun, as we know. We've probably seen them sitting in the sun, and that's the way they warm up. So on a cold day, they literally can't move. And so on a cold day, there's these little bundles of protein that mice can come up and nibble on. And we occasionally see uh, lizards that we've caught that have been preyed on by mice and they'll just be chewed away so little wee gnawing chews on the side of the body that ultimately kills them well it's still alive terrible it's terrible that is awful that's what's happening in new zealand just with ordinary sized mice with our lizards we just don't see it yeah that's a major and I, i do know that it's something that our um our scientists in the department are wrestling with right now isn't it is is how we're going to get our heads around what we do about the mice i think another um predator that always goes under the radar and always ends up being controversial every time I mention it and boy does that Beatrix Potter have a lot to answer for is the blooming hedgehog tell us about what hedgehogs do to lizards. So hedgehogs are pretty cute but they um, do exactly the same as mice so when those um, lizards are cold and they can't move those those hedgehogs will be the opportunistic feeders so they'll be gnawing away at their lizards. I'm always fascinated by people who, and this will be controversial so I, I look forward to your feedback. Often people will talk about leaving out bread and milk for the hedgehogs or cat biscuits or whatever and my response to that is would you leave something out for a stoat? Or a rat. Exactly. Because it's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. And it, it's just that we're not seeing it. Like they're, they're, they don't um, attack things in the middle of the day when we can see it. They, um, they're gnawing away at those lizards when they can't move. And so, yeah, we just, yeah. Yeah, because they're just shut down at night, aren't they? They're, they're basically down. solar powered. So they're just like lying there while a hedgehog on his stumpy wee legs is just, ch- oh. So take home message. Get your hedgehog feeding off your... Stop your hedgehog feeding. Off your menu. <laughs> put a trap in your backyard. I think the most obvious impact that you can um, see or experience in terms of predators on lizards is when you go to places where there are no predators, right? And so, not to show off, but yesterday I was on Hoturu or Toi or Little Barrier Island. And I think there's something like 14 species of reptile on that one island all happily cohabitating in their various ecological niches right across the island and all doing really well because there's no predators, right? Exactly. And and so there would have been, there's heaps of species, lots of diversity. And I bet you when you jumped off your, off your boat, you were almost kicking them out of the way as you walked through the grass. And that's the sort of abundance that we just don't see in the mainland. And that, But that's normal. That That's how New Zealand should be. We should be flushing them away as we walk through the grass. What's something about the work that you do 
that you wish everybody out there knew? I wish they knew a lot more than, than they do just about lizards. I realise how amazing they are and that they're not just the little brown jobs in your backyard. In fact, there's an amazing book out that everyone should have and at home. It's, it's a handbook and you can flick through it. I flick through it for hours on end and look at every single lizard and you'll see the diversity there. I also um, really wish people could see uh, some of the habitat destruction that's still happening. So we're absolutely losing um, populations through predation, but we've also got habitat loss. And in habitat in New Zealand, we generally don't think that we're losing habitat, but actually in the lizard context we are. And it's because there's so many species, they live in such diverse places. I think you've touched on something really important there, Lynn, because I think we're a bit um, simplistic in New Zealand in terms of what we think the conservation areas are. We tend to think they're the bush. So if they're the bush, the forest, that's where the nature is, and it's not everywhere else. And, of course, the lizards are everywhere else, aren't they? I mean, they are in the bush, but um, the, the places that I think of in terms of being perfect homes for particularly some of our green gecko species are generally what farmers would consider scrub. Yeah. You know, so the 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 sort of Manuka, Kanuka, Caprosma, Madagari, that that kind of Mulenbecher, that stuff is a bit messy. Yeah. It's kind of the stuff you want to tidy up. Well, the good the good news about that though is for for gardeners is that messy is great. Lizards love messy. I think maybe that's why I have such an affinity to lizards then, because it's that messy You're allowed is to good. be messy, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> You're allowed. <laughs> messy is good. Get out there and mess up your gardens. Um, great. So what do you think has been your most satisfying experience professionally when it comes to the all the lizard work that you've been involved with? Oh, so that's a tricky one. Maybe I need to wait a few years, but I think Chesterfield Skink's been a pretty amazing project and we're still a wee way away from saving those species. So Chesterfield Skink lives on this fairly unremarkable piece of beach just north of Hokitika. It's a nationally critical species and we've done a reasonable amount of research on it over the last three three to four years. Is that the one with the curly whirly tail? Curly whirly <laughs> I love this yes, one. Curly Willy. So that was a, a name that we gave to a, a skink. It curls its, its tail, its whole body actually curled up into this. It's like a curly fry. Yeah. It's like or like a, a Mr. Whippy. Mr. Whippy. Ice cream. Or a turd, I've been told. <laughs> <laughs> Seems we're always going to go there in this podcast. <laughs> Um, that aside, so the reason it's got a nice curly whirly tail is because we think it's probably arboreal, so they use that tail, just like monkeys do, to grip onto to forests. And so the species is now living on the, on the coast, on the beach. It was probably coastal forest back in the day, and it's all been cut down. Um, it's lost most of its habitat. It's probably been preyed upon by all the mice and cats and hedgehogs in the world, and it's now down to a population of 200. We had a major setback last year with um, cyclone phase which I'm sure lots of people are going to remember that one. It was a really damaging cyclone. And what happened at um, at a Chesterfield Skink site was that they, on their little safe, we thought was safe beach site, there were these massive um, waves, massive tides, which overwashed them. The whole the whole entire population was overwashed over a couple of tides, and so. I got that news when I was sitting in Invercargill doing some other work and I actually thought that we'd lost the whole species. So it was that was my wow. worst day. Worst day. There were a few tears. I'm not <laughs> surprised. There were a few tears. But we, when we realised the damage that had happened, I 
jumped on the phone to Auckland Zoo. Auckland Zoo said, hmm, I think we could probably help you there. Give me a day to figure out whether we can take some animals into captivity for you as a safeguard. And, um, and a day later, we, we'd had a plan to get some animals up into the zoo into captivity where they'd be safe. So we ended up doing that over a couple of months and it turned out that the, um, I don't know what those skinks were doing during that storm, but it turned out that most of them have probably survived. What? Yeah, I I just don't know what they would have done. Like it was under over, salt water. Under salt water. Twice. Pounding seas. Like anyone on the coast at the time, or has told me the stories of what the sea was like at the time. My best guess is that they live in burrows and they just hang on. And maybe there were some air pockets down there, but I don't even really know how they breathe during that time. So we've got a secure population up at Auckland Zoo and they're doing a great job of looking after those. And our next job, so this is why the the story isn't over yet, the next job is for us to find, to build a fence, to find a place that we could put them that's safe from storms um, and to get those animals at Auckland Zoo back into the wild in a safe place away from predators. So you've got basically an entire species sitting in the zoo? Not quite. So we did a, um, one of our research trips just down there recently, and we've got, um, and there'll be more, but we found 52 animals down there. So we've at least got 100 animals. There's probably more. So between 100 and 200 animals remaining. Still, that's it's getting pretty right dire. down there. I mean, people kind of, we hear a lot about kakapo. Yeah. And there are 147 adults and, you know, everybody's pretty freaked out about a number that low. And yet here are these populations of skinks that probably no one's ever heard of that are down to the same, the yeah. same level. And, and to be honest now, because we've been talking about Chesterfield skinks for a wee while, and Chesterfield skinks is probably relatively well known com- compared to some of the other species, which um, some of them are in worse, in worse situation. I think that's the challenge, though, isn't it, Lynn, for, for you guys? Working, you know, when you're working as a, an ecologist, when you get populations or species down to such low numbers or in such sort of fragmented places, any impact uh, in addition to that becomes essentially a, th- a threat to their very survival, right? Yeah, any, and a storm, a cyclone, was the last thing we were thinking of with Chesterfield skiing. So we were focused from day one. We really knew nothing about those species. We didn't even know how to identify them. So every animal that we took, we had to have confirmed genetically. Luckily, we've figured out how to identify them. And, and we didn't know the breeding. We didn't know the extent of where they were. We didn't, we didn't know what their threats were. We had some best guesses about mice. So there were a whole heap of questions that we were um, trying to answer in those first three years. And storm damage was the last question on our mind. And then suddenly the storm hit. And so we had to completely change tact and change everything that we were planning for, the, for that species. Yeah, and, and I guess another kind of growing risk through climate change impacts on weather. Absolutely. That we're have to keep an eye out for. Yeah, and I, I just look at all the storms. I like I am looking out for storms now. They are getting more frequent. You have to get pretty good at lizard identification, and I know that one of the problems with trying to discern what the different species are is they all look the same. Particularly some of those skinks. I've talked to you guys before, and you've you know said things to me like, "Oh no, you've got that wrong. You count the scales behind the eyeball." <laughs> um, <laughs> So your lizard ID has to be pretty switched on, doesn't it? Tell us a little bit about what's involved in, you know, visually identifying some of those lizards. So it's hard because it's hard. So even our experts who do count the scales, one of the tools we use to figure out who's different and who's not, but even those guys who do that are um, often stumped. So we, we, they are kind of all the same. Um, but when you get to know them, 
they're really different. So it's like anything, if you know something really well, you can start to see the differences. And sometimes when we're first starting out, we find something new, we think it's new, it kind of kind of feels different and it doesn't look quite the same and it's doing st- different stuff and it's got, a slight, got two more scales than it should have. We often have to confirm with genetic techniques and we've got some really sophisticated uh, genetic techniques now that can tell us definitively the different species. Once we know that, we can then split them into those two two groups or whatever, and we can see we can start seeing the differences by eye. So we can count the scales, and we we can confirm that it should have two extra scales behind its eyeball, and um, and we can start seeing some of the colour differences. We start seeing differences in the proportions of their body sh- body shape, and it's really subtle, and it sounds tediously boring but it's actually really exciting when you can tell a lizard apart from another one (laughs) so we have had a question come to us from twitter uh and somebody has asked us what's the biggest threat to tropical lizard species i suspect habitat loss to be honest i think in a lot of countries uh habitat loss is still a massive um a massive problem and maybe climate change climate change yeah so interestingly some lizards can um, change their sex depending on the temperature that the eggs are incubated at that still blows my mind I've known that for a little while but it still blows my mind so climate change will have a massive impact on those sorts of species where um, warming will, will, will create more boys than girls yeah, and we've seen that in Tuatara, which is not a lizard, by the way, uh, which is a reptile. Uh, I know that in some populations, uh, Tuatara are already skewing towards more males hatching as a result of that warming of, of, of the soil where the eggs are Yeah, are yeah. yeah, in that particular case, it's probably because the, um, the vegetation has um, been degraded through various activities through through the decades um yeah but yeah it's it's not looking it's not looking great for our, for tuatara in new zealand what should people do if they find a lizard the most common way is that their cat brings in a lizard so the best thing to do is to t- obviously to take it off the cat and then release it into a safe area so don't release it to a place where um where the cat can catch it again but if you've got some of those divericated shrubs or spiky shrubs that your cat doesn't like going into that's the place to release it the other really good thing to do if you can is if you're sneaky if your cat hasn't got hold of it is to try and sneak up and take a good photo of it especially if you're not an urban area like urban areas we pretty much know what species we've got it's still useful to get information from urban areas but if you're in a remote place you're out tramping in the back blocks of nowhere and you see a lizard that is actually a really good thing that gives us our first clues about where to look for lizard populations so if you can take a photo please try and make it clear I know it's really hard but we get so many times we get blurry photos of this stick like thing It's not helpful. <laughs> um, and if you can't get a good photo, because I do understand it's really difficult, they're moving and you, it's hard to catch, the, hard to get close to them. Um, it's definitely send in the report. Send in, send in whatever, send in an email to doc, to your local doc office, um, and tell them as much as you can about it, the location, what sort of habitat it was in, what sort of weather conditions it was, who you are, so we can go back to you and talk to you about it if it's something really interesting. All of that information gives us our best clues and it's that sort of record that leads us to um, new species like we've had rock climbers who have said oh we saw these lizards while we were rock climbing but we never got any photos. Sinbad skinks. New, new species, Sinbad skinks, yep. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's really cool to think out there that the public could be contributing to some new scientific discovery and that you guys are really keen to hear from them about what they're seeing out there. Yeah, backcountry, like South Island, South Island in particular, um, but not exclusively, South Island high country in the, um, in the mountains and the really remote places. We've got no record, literally no records of lizards from Southern Fiordland. So anyone who's in there sees anything, it's going to be hugely significant. It's been really amazing talking to you, Lynn, because you are describing a new um, generation of conservation pioneers. You know, you're you're describing things that I read about, you know, when the Wildlife Service were out doing the same surveying for birds, trying to work out how to solve the problems of predation, all that kind of stuff. You're quite right. We're, we're kind of poised on the precipice of exactly the same story now, but for lizards, and I feel like we're in good hands. Like I, I feel like the passion that you guys have for these lizards is setting us in a pretty good stead, given those massive challenges, the, the mice, the hedgehogs, um, the impacts of climate change. I feel like we, we probably are going to crack this, right? Yeah, and you know the thing that I'm really looking forward to is all of the people after me who are going to stand on my shoulders and look down at me and go, why didn't you guys know this? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be great. I'd love to have everyone in the few generations' time saying, Lynn, why didn't you do this with our lizards? Um, and, and have all those tools available and lizards running all over, our, all over the lands, us flushing them away as we walk through the grass. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be amazing. I look forward to that too. And I can't think of a more perfect way to wrap up. So Lynn, thank you so much for your time and for your passion and energy and expertise. And I look forward to hearing about your next discovery. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you like what you heard, show us some love with a five-star rating. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. So subscribe now and never miss an episode. 